Good morning. It's Tuesday, October 15th, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news, all within 15 minutes or fewer. My name is Connor Tapp, and I'm joined today by 24-7 Sports College Sports Editor Trey Scott. Trey, one year ago, the NCAA transfer portal opened for business and college athletics were changed forever. It's crazy to think that a year ago, we were still hung up on how weird the name transfer portal is. And yet, 365 days later, the portal is just as well understood and accepted as part of our lives as observers of the sport as, say, the targeting rule. Well, maybe bad example. Nobody really understands the targeting rule either. To mark the one-year anniversary of the day the transfer portal went online, let's bring in 24-7 Sports National College football writer Chris Hummer, who has taken the lead on our portal coverage. Chris, so, I mean, how has the transfer portal changed college football in the past year? Oh, I think it's, I think it's changed almost everything. Uh, players now have a measure of agency when it comes to uh, the ability to determine where they're going to play in their college football careers. Um, they're still not able to transfer without restriction. Uh, you still have to sit out a season if you're an underclassman, more than likely, um, if you do leave your school uh, before you graduate. But players no longer have to go ask coaches for permission, nor can most schools restrict where a player is going to go. So in that way, it's been huge. And then additionally, because players don't have to ask permission, we've seen a larger number of players jump in the portal uh, currently, since the portal uh, came into date a year ago today, there have been n- over 1,900 FBS players who have entered the transfer portal. So it's completely altered uh, player movement. And in some cases, like as we've seen at places like SMU, Houston, and South Florida, it's changed the way people view roster construction. So overall, yeah, it's been huge. And Chris, you you sort of run our portal coverage at 24-7 Sports. This is a daily trickle, right? This isn't just a big group of guys every offseason or a big group of guys after week four. I mean, these are this is a daily thing. Yeah, like every day there are one or two players popping up in the portal for the most part. Um, that includes during the season. I, there, I can't think of many days during this season even, like – even yesterday, like after six weeks into the season, that players aren't jumping in the portal. Like it is a daily year round thing. Obviously, the wave is a lot larger in December once the season's over, December, January, February. But after spring ball, you see players jumping in the portal. During the summer, you see players jumping in the portal. After games, you see players jumping in the portal. It is a constant stream of movement. Chris, are there any ways in which the introduction of the transfer portal has changed things in a way that maybe aren't so easy to say are 100% positive, like players having more autonomy over, over where they're playing? Are there, any, are there any drawbacks that we're pretty certain are bugs in this feature one year on? Yeah, I, I guess it would depend on who you're speaking with in terms of bugs in the process, I suppose. For coaches, it's a like it's a pretty significant roster construction headache in some ways. You essentially have guys that are already on your roster who, after six months, we've seen this already several times with 2019 class players that decide to leave campus very quickly. In some cases, it could be just a case of homesickness and they're already out the door, whereas in the past, they might have had to stick it out a little bit longer. And that can cause coaches major headaches in terms of your numbers year to year, especially given that there's still a 25-player cap 
uh, for each recruiting cycle. So you can fall behind numbers wise if you lose a huge number of players to the transfer portal. Like we've seen programs like Virginia Tech have to go through this offseason. Um, from a player's perspective, if you take a look at the portal, um, this isn't necessarily a bug. It's just more you have to be a little smart about how you approach the portal and have to be a little realistic about your options. There are a lot of players, even last cycle, who still haven't found homes. Um, in some cases, it's a matter of somebody not graduating. But um, I have talked to several players from last cycle, some of which were former four-star recruits. Um, a guy like Cameron Townsend's a good example from Texas. He was a four-star recruit at Texas. Uh, he graduated from Texas. He didn't play much at Texas. But once he went in the portal, he kind of expected to have some options. And he wasn't really contacted all that much. And that's just kind of the reality when there are so many people looking for new homes. Not everybody's going to find a landing spot in the FBS or even the FCS in some cases. And that is just something that players have to be mindful of as they approach things. Um, there's other smaller things, but I think those are the two main highlights from a portal perspective from coaches and players. You just It's still kind of a feeling out phase in terms of how that affects rosters and then also how players... Uh, kind of approach finding new places because it's kind of I wouldn't call it the wild wild west but it is another re-recruitment and even this time you have even less information as a player when you enter the portal about who is potentially interested in you because teams are not allowed to contact you before you enter the portal I think one of the misconceptions with the portal and Chris I kind of want to get your thoughts on this is we've seen with the dawn of the transfer portal we've also seen the NCAA be a little bit more lenient with its waiver process, I think, at, at least as far as high-profile transfers like a Justin Fields or a Tate Martell. And I guess that having the transfer portal and putting that all in the wide open has increased the amount of transfers and it increased the visibility and the spotlight on the transfer waiver process. And so we saw this offseason, one of the big stories was Tate Martell eligible immediately. Justin Fields eligible immediately. And then we saw, okay, so those are big schools. And we, we've seen plenty of Luke Ford at Illinois, not eligible. Brock Hoffman at Virginia Tech, not eligible. Chris, there's no correlation, right, between the NCAA and their decision-making process and the fact that there is a transfer portal? No, there is no correlation. I just think the transfer portal has forced a larger number of waiver decisions to be held. Um, in the past, waiver decisions were pretty were pretty limited in terms of scope because in a lot of cases, players knew that once they transferred, they'd have to sit out a full season in most cases. I think especially early on, early in the transfer portal, players were a little unclear. I think some players viewed it as like almost like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like I can transfer and retain eligibility. And I think that was only strengthened by the fact that we did see people like Justin Fields and Tate Martell uh, earn waivers in uh, notable circumstances. I think that fueled that narrative. And I think there was a bit of misinformation out there. But to be fair, at one point during the transfer process, right after Tate Martell got his waiver approved, at that point there were 51 out of 64 uh, waivers approved in that last kind of calendar year. Uh, since then, the numbers have kind of dropped off a little bit in terms of the amount of waivers that have been approved. But um, it has certainly shined more light on the waiver process for the NCAA. And I think ultimately, a year after the transfer portal, we still have many more questions about that waiver process than we do answers. Yeah, if I can make a comparison to soccer, it 
the English Premier League this year has instituted video assistant referees, and it the so there there have been a lot of situations where you're reviewing handball handball calls, and then there's like this conflation of the issue of. Well, uh, people are v- blaming VAR, much like people are blaming the transfer portal, when really the problem is that the underlying rules that we're reviewing with VAR don't make any sense. And I think that's kind of the issue with the transfer portal and the transfer waiver rules around it. Um, Chris, I, you nobody is more plugged into what's going on in the transfer portal than you. And I wonder... Are you noticing any teams that are taking unique or interesting approaches to the portal or doing a particularly good or bad job and how they're uh, supplementing their roster with it? Yeah, I, uh, SMU is pretty notably uh, 6-0 this season, and that's a team that added 15 transfers through the portal this offseason. Um, a number of them, like Shane Bouchelle and Brandon Stevens, a Running back they took from UCLA and uh, transformed into a corner uh, are playing really well. And SMU, I went up to Dallas for a story on this. Essentially, their player personnel director, Jeff Jordan, explained to me, since SMU is in a big metropolitan area, uh, they live in a metroplex where kids uh, come from as recruits in a lot of cases, uh, when they don't work out, SMU is a really friendly landing spot for people to come back home. So SMU has been really advantageous in taking and kind of adding talent they wouldn't necessarily have a chance at in the past uh, through the transfer portal. And it's really reshaped their roster and added a lot of talent. I won't say that's the only reason SMU is 6-0. Obviously, Sonny Dykes has a lot of history as a head coach, and that program had a lot of talented uh, when he inherited it. But it's really kind of bolstered that roster. And we've seen this not only from SMU, but from a lot of, bigger programs, a bigger group of five programs in metropolitan areas. Um, South Florida is a good example. They've had several notable transfers work out well there. UCF added several players to the transfer portal. Cincinnati added several players to the transfer portal. Even like San Diego State added several players to the transfer portal. So I think you're seeing um, kids from pockets that are really recruiting hotbeds uh, end up going home, and that works out really well for smaller group of five schools in those areas. So I think that's been one of the more unique uh, approaches to the portal so far. There's also been schools that have been more targeted and selected about adding talent. Ohio State, Alabama, Texas, Oklahoma are examples of that. But when you're talking about really kind of approaching roster building in a unique way, some of those smaller group of five schools have really taken advantage. So, Chris, today on 247sports.com, you have a 24-7 sports midseason all-transfer portal team. Chris, tell us about the players on this list and anything that you may have – not all of them, but just some that jump out. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, And is there anything in particular that you noticed compiling this list? Yeah, I think – what I noticed, well, first of all, you see some schools that have really kind of changed their roster outlook through the transfer portal there. Illinois is a great example. Um, they became a really friend, friendly landing spot for a number of transfers. Brandon Peters, uh, the former Michigan quarterback, probably got the most attention. But Josh Entema, Bebe, I really apologize for butchering your name, Josh, is leading Illinois in catches and touchdowns. Uh, Owale Bataku, uh, Bataku 
uh, a former USC five-star also landed Illinois. At one point this season, he led the nation in both sacks and tackles for loss. He's on the team after a really strong start. Both of those players who looked dead in the water at USC recruiting busts have now kind of transformed their careers and now have a shot at the NFL potentially because they had a uh, change of scenery. I think this transfer portal overall has been a really bad look for USC, by the way, just from a development standpoint. And I think you're seeing a lot of pressure on Clay Helton as a result of that. But that's that's probably a topic for another day. Um, Jalen Hurts is obviously on the team. Quarterbacks are a really big part of the transfer process. You had two great options in the transfer portal this year for kind of the transfer portal quarterback MVP. But Hertz's numbers are very much on pace in terms of where Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield's numbers were during their Heisman seasons. So you kind of have to lean him. Um, one thing I would say I've noticed that's particularly interesting is running backs are not particularly big winners in the transfer portal. Hmm. I don't think you see a lot of transfer running backs by the nature of the position. If you're good at a running back and you can be successful as a running back in college, you can get drafted from anywhere. I think we've seen that. Like, if you have the ball carrying skills, like you can be at Toledo and you could still be a second or third round pick. So it doesn't really incentivize running backs to leave. And if you're not earning snaps as a running back at your group of five program, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to do so if you leave and go to a power five. And the same could be said of running backs out of power five dropping down to the group of five. So what we've seen this year is a lot of running backs added for depth purposes, but not necessarily star rushers. And I think that's a position that's going to continue to be kind of a weakness in the transfer portal for that reason. Um, overall, though, I think the defenders have been kind of the stronger group in the portal. We got a lot of questions about quarterbacks, but uh, defensive linemen, linebackers, defensive backs have been um, some really heavy areas of players leaving and having a lot of success elsewhere. So um, I think in the future you're going to see those patterns continue. You're not going to see a lot of particularly high-profile skill players outside of quarterbacks enter the portal, but you will have some impact defensive players uh, kind of roll through over the years. I was I was going to jump in and say real quickly, you know, putting that thing together. You noticed, in addition to the running backs, the, the receivers. It's not that great of a group, but when you it's you know it's Immator Bebe and then KJ Osborne and and that's really it. Those guys are not putting up big numbers. I, I think the most interesting thing I thought. Chris and Connor was the offensive line is sort of where the big time college football programs, Alabama's got a, a guy, Ohio state's got a guy, Texas has got a guy have sort of been really selective. I think in picking one final piece that they need from their offensive line and plugging and playing that guy immediately. I mean, we've got Landon Dickerson, Jonah Jackson, Parker Braun, Chris, that stood out to me. It was, it was, it was the, the offensive line with the exception of, of quarterback is really the only thing anyone can get on the offensive side of the ball so far. Yeah. And I think that's, I think it's interesting. Uh, offensive line has really for a long time been a position schools have kind of tried to address through the transfer portal. And I think in that case, it works out well for both parties. The offensive linemen have the opportunity to show that they can play at a bigger FBS program and stand up to better pass rushing competition and then offensive line, which is still by far the hardest position to develop and recruit um, for programs that are ready to compete immediately. It gives them an ability to add a final piece. As you said, uh, Ohio State has one in Jonah Jackson, who has really solidified um, a guard spot for the Buckeyes. Uh, Parker Braun, who came from Georgia Tech, a program that ran the triple option for a long time. He was kind of an undersized guy. In six months at Texas, he put, he's put on a lot of weight. 
And you could argue he's probably been Texas's best or second best lineman through uh, six weeks. That's been huge for the Longhorns. And even Alabama, a team that doesn't need a lot of help generally, added Landon Dickerson, a former five-star from Florida State. And it's really solidified Florida, or it's solidified Alabama's offensive line. And it's kind of uh, reinvigorated Landon Dickerson's career. He struggled at Florida State to stay healthy. And uh, he's been great at Alabama. And now he's probably going to be in position in six months or maybe a year and a half to be a draft pick. So that offensive line um, transfer process works out well for both parties. And I think you're seeing a lot of contenders take advantage of it. All right. Chris Hummer is a national college football writer for 24-7 Sports. You can find him on Twitter at Chris underscore Hummer. Chris, thank you. Welcome back to the College Football Daily. It's Tuesday, and that means we've just got a fresh round of updates on big injuries from around the sport. Let's start off with the Virginia Cavaliers. An ankle injury is expected to keep All-American Virginia quarterback Bryce Hall out for the remainder of the 2019 season. Hall was carted off the field during the Cavaliers' loss to Miami on Friday. Senior Texas safety Chris Brown is expected to miss six weeks with a fractured forearm suffered on Saturday during the Longhorns' 34-27 loss to Oklahoma. Texas is already piecing together its secondary after injuries to starting cornerback Jalen Green, starting safety Caden Stearns, and starting nickelback Josh Thompson. Oklahoma quarterback Jalen Hurts appeared before the media on Monday with a bandage on his right hand. Hurts said that his hand had become swollen early during the Sooners' win over Texas on Saturday. Though Hurts was able to play through the pain, he says he wasn't able to control the ball like he wanted to. Boston College quarterback Anthony Brown will miss the remainder of the 2019 season after having surgery to repair a lower leg injury suffered on October 5th against Louisville. The Eagles have a 3-3 record in Steve Adazio's seventh year in Chestnut Hill and host NC State on Saturday. Finally today, Auburn has reportedly decided to scrap changes to its logo that were first reported earlier this year by Auburn Undercover's Brandon Marcello. That's going to do it for today's episode of the College Football Daily. If you appreciate what we're doing, we ask that you do one thing this week to help us spread the word about the show. Whether that's telling a friend or family member that Trey and I wake up at 6 a.m. every weekday to make sure you're all caught up on college football news or simply leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. For Trey Scott and Chris Hummer, I'm Connor Tapp, and we'll see you bright and early on Wednesday for the next edition of the College Football Daily. College Football Daily.